So welcome to session number nine. There's going to be 13, Lord willing. And we're traveling from Genesis to Revelation in 13 weeks. That's pretty fast. So uh, tonight we're going to finish the Old Testament. And uh, the rest of this series uh, for the next few weeks will be in the New Testament. So let's begin in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of taking this journey together through your holy scriptures. Pray that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures and our hearts so that it might apply inside and outside. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight we finish the Old Testament part of God's story. We began this journey together nine weeks ago. Chapter one of the story began with God and man in a beautiful garden, perfect paradise until the virus of sin is released into the seed of Adam and his offspring, and that seed of sin separated man from God. If you go back to the story, there was a garden, they walked in his presence, and then he says, you have to leave, and he puts up a gate on the east side of Eden, guarded by angels, cherubim with flaming swords. They could no longer enter, not only to, to experience the tree of life, but to experience the presence of God. You can no longer come in. God then creates an upper story plan to do whatever it takes to get us back, back into his presence to restore what was lost. Here's the thing I've always found interesting. When you really study the whole scripture, you'll find the entire thing, Genesis to Revelation, is the way back to the garden. It's the, it's the whole story of how he's going to take us in this big giant circle to get us back to the garden, which is his presence. So tonight in chapter 21 of, there's 31 total events that we're focusing on in these 13 weeks. Tonight in chapter 21, we turn the final page of the old original covenant. Next week, God willing, we'll start a four-week journey into the new and final covenant of God to restore God's relationship with man that was lost in the beginning. <clears throat> so chapter 21 begins with three major projects underway. Zerubbabel has rebuilt the temple of God in Jerusalem. Zerubbabel, he's got the temple. Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And Ezra the priests from the line of Aaron will restore the word of God. I'm going to hold it up. He's going to restore the word of God to its rightful place at the center of the people of God. It had been 140 years since the people had read and studied the word of God. Generational starvation. So if you study the scriptures, I want you to understand, 140 years since Israel as a people had gathered around and studied the old covenant. 140 years. What do you think that means? Nobody knows anything. They don't know anything about the word of God. It's lost. Generationally lost. So how do they know what to do? If you jump into the story, how does Zerubbabel, yeah, you say it three times. How does Zerubbabel and, and Nehemiah and Ezra, how do they know what to do? I mean, how massive is this undertaking? They're going to rebuild the temple. They're going to rebuild the walls. They're going to reestablish the word of God as the center of the people. How? Who has initiated this return to Jerusalem? This is the upper story plan of God. How else can you explain why the king of Persia would commission such a work. Now, if you were here last week, and I hope you were, um, the first king in, in Ezra 1, we're going to read from Ezra 7, but if you were to go back to Ezra 1, the first king in Persia, his name was Cyrus, issued the decree that they're going to go back. Now we're in chapter 7 of Ezra, and the king has changed. Uh, now the king's name is Artaxerxes. And and why did Cyrus, and why is Artaxerxes going to commission this project? So here we go. Ezra 7. This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes had given to Ezra the priest 
and teacher, a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law of the God of heaven, greetings. Now, I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, what's the kingdom? Persia, okay? The Medo-Persian Empire. Any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites who wish to go to Jerusalem with you, Ezra, may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. So he's, he's got a copy of the law. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver, the gold that the king and his advisors have freely given, freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. What's that tell you so far? Artaxerxes knows about the God of Israel. He knows. So he's got this knowledge of the, the God of Israel. Together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the province in Babylon, as well as the freewill offerings of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, male lambs, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. So what is happening? The king has full knowledge that they're going to reestablish animal sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem as the people regathered that had been scattered from the dispersion. Okay? They're coming back to reestablish animal sacrifices. Now, if you were here last week, why? Why are they doing it? It is to atone for the sin of the people so the people can have communion with God again. So they can enter the presence of God. Without blood, they can't go into the presence of God. There's this distance, right? Verse 18. You and your brother Jews may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold in accordance with the will of your God. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for worship in the temple of your God and anything else needed for the temple of your God that you may have occasion to supply. You may provide from the royal treasury. So Persia's riches are going to be used for this project. Now I, King Artaxerxes, order order all the treasurers of trans-Euphrates to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law of God, the God of heaven, may ask of you, up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, and a hundred baths of olive oil, and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, so do you think Artaxerxes has a little bit of fear of the Lord in him? I, I want you to get this. Why is he doing this? The fear of God. The absolute power and authority and fear of God has come across this king. Listen carefully. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Why? Why should there be wrath against the realm of of the king and his sons. So in other words, he's afraid that if I don't do this, the wrath of God's going to fall upon me, Artaxerxes, and my sons. You are, you are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes. Somebody say hallelujah. Oh, they can't even do taxation to this bunch. Or tribute or duty or any of the priests. Uh, on, in, on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, or other workers at the house of God. Do, do you know how big that is? Everybody else pays taxes. Nobody in that temple reestablishment uh, re project is going to pay taxes. Why? He has the fear of God. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess. See how he looks at Ezra? He looks at Ezra with honor which you possess. Appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God. And you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death. 
banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way. And who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials, because the hand of the Lord my God was on me. So to go back to the question, how did these guys know what to do? They transformed a nation that had been scattered to nothing. The hand of the Lord, because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. No man could have crafted or conceived this plan. This is the upper story plan of God. He can and does direct the affairs of man until they achieve his divine plan. He has put in the heart of Cyrus, and now he has put in the heart of Artaxerxes that you're going to be a part of reestablishing temple worship in Jerusalem. The temple of God has been rebuilt, but the walls of protection around the city of Jerusalem are still in rubble. Even going all the way back to King Nebuchadnezzar's invasion in 586 BC. Nehemiah gets word. Now that's a lot of Ezra. We've kind of focused on Ezra, right? Ezra's going to reestablish the word of God among the people. Nehemiah gets the word of the status of Jerusalem's walls. And he weeps. Obviously, God is working in the heart of Nehemiah, just like he did in Ezra, just like he did in Cyrus, just like he did in Artaxerxes. He's, he's moving them to want to do something because he's doing it through them. So here comes Nehemiah. So Ezra's called to reestablish the word as central to Israel, the word of God, the old covenant. Here comes Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 12th, 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Susa, that's in Persia, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and I questioned them about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now let me give you the context. In 586 BC, the nation fell. They were all scattered. These are Babylonian slaves. Babylon has fallen. Medo-Persian Empire has taken over. It's been a long time. God is now making a plan to, after 70 years, bring them back to Jerusalem. So he gets word by messenger that Jerusalem is a disaster. And he weeps and he fasts and he prays. Verse 5. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, <clears throat> If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Now, now I want you all to get this. He's quoting, he's confessing his sin. Nehemiah is confessing his sin. And he's going back to the time of Moses and saying, We remember, because it's in the Word, when you told Moses that there would be consequences if you rebel against me. Here's the consequences. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Where's Nehemiah? He's one of the scattered among the nations. He's one of those guys. 
If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, even if the Jews were scattered so far away, you don't even know where they are. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So where is the only place on earth that God chose for the dwelling of his name? Where? Jerusalem. Do you understand? This is what God told Moses. And Nehemiah knows it. It's verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was the cupbearer to the king. Now, let me give you some context. Nehemiah is wanting to go to the king and ask King Artaxerxes to join this group going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. He is the cupbearer to the king, which means he has some status, but he's also afraid of what's gonna happen if he, a Jew, asked King Artaxerxes, can I leave? Can, can, I, can I take all of these people and go back to Jerusalem? Or is that gonna be okay with you, king? These are slaves. You know, what do you think they are? They're, they're slaves. They are owned by the Persian Empire. And he's going to ask him to, we're going to leave. Give your servants success today by granting him favor in the presence of the king. So will God hear the prayer of Nehemiah? Here's the best part. God put the prayer of Nehemiah inside of Nehemiah. He's praying this because God's already doing it. Isn't that wonderful? He's praying it because God's already working this thing out. Who's doing this, Ezra and Nehemiah? Who's doing all this? God's doing it. Is Nehemiah being moved by God at that very moment to join something he doesn't even know about? He just feels this urge. It's the Spirit of God moving. So let's go to chapter 2. In the, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, he's the cupbearer, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was much afraid. Now, do you see why Nehemiah is afraid? Because if the king thinks his cupbearer's not doing his job, he just, and you get a new cupbearer, right? I was much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, oh, I love this, this is only God. What is it that you want? God's opening the king's heart. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him, the king, send me, Nehemiah, to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried. So I, Nehemiah, can rebuild the walls. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you come back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I want you to take a moment and think about Nehemiah and Ezra. These two guys, I've told you both of the stories both being sent by the Persian king to restore Jerusalem and the temple of God, who's doing it? And the reason I make such a big deal out of that is what Jesus said to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Who's doing it? 
Go into all the world, preach the gospel. Baptize, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I am with you even to the end of the age. Who's doing it? Who's doing it? Who's doing it then? Who's doing it now? We think we're doing it? We're Ezra. We're Nehemiah. We're under the power and the Spirit of God, fulfilling His plan. So, will there be opposition? Oh, yes. There's the spirit war. Nehemiah 2.19. His name is Sambalat. Sambalat. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, what are they hearing about? They're going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? They mocked and they ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against King Artaxerxes? They don't know that Artaxerxes has given his approval. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. They know where the power is. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Now, this is going to be a battle that's going to last for years. This Sambalat um, and Tobiah and this Arab guy, they're going to fight the reconstruction the entire time. The historic right to Jerusalem is still being fought about today. In fact, if you want to read the news this week, this week, this week, the historic battle for Jerusalem is happening right now still. This is the battle for Jerusalem. Why? It's the throne of God. Who wants it? Satan. Who has it? Jesus. It's the battle. So let's do something. Let's go pause in the story of Nehemiah and Ezra. Let's go back to King Solomon. In 2 Chronicles 7, 11, when Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord, and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among the people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Okay, where's he at? They're in Jerusalem. The Lord is making a promise to Solomon as he builds the original temple that he will always listen to the prayers from this place. And if the people who are called by my name, if they fall away, after they fall away, if they'll repent and turn to me, I will hear them, I will heal them. Verse 16. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Do you think that still applies today? Yes. Yes. That was a reference to the temple of God. But what about Jerusalem? The city itself. When God divides the kingdom of Israel at the sin of Solomon... And he divides them into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. What about Jerusalem? First Kings 11. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from Solomon, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So when we say Jerusalem, we're not just talking about the temple. We're talking about the city, the city itself and, and the temple. Second Chronicles 6, 4. Then he, and his name is Solomon in this story, said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hands has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to my father David. 
For he said, since the day I brought my people out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city in any tribe of Israel to have a temple built for my name to be there, nor have I chosen anyone to be the leader over my people Israel. But now something changed. I have chosen Jerusalem. God is speaking to Solomon. I have chosen Jerusalem for my name to be there. And I have chosen David to rule my people Israel. So I make all of that. Why are they coming back? Why is this God's plan? Nehemiah and Ezra, why, why are they coming back? Why is God moving a Persian kingdom to redo this? Listen carefully. The temple, as we move through the story, the temple of God is rebuilt. The walls of the city are rebuilt. But there's something missing. This. The word of God must be restored. Okay? As the story progresses, the temple, the walls, and now the word. Nehemiah 8. All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe, bring out the books of the law of Moses. What do you think that is? This, the Old Testament. Bring out the books of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women of all who were able to understand. He, Ezra, read it aloud. Are you ready? From daybreak till noon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand, and all the people listened attentively, attentively to the book of the law. What's he doing? In our vocabulary, he would be reading the, the Old Testament um, law of Moses to the people. Okay? And they're listening attentive. The temple's built, the walls are built, but the word must come back to the people. Uh, Nehemiah 8. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. When he read the word, they stood. When he finished reading the word, they bowed. The temple, the walls, the word. And let me just say this. The temple and the walls would have meant nothing without this. Without this. The, the building, the walls, they mean nothing if this isn't in them. Nothing. The Old Testament still has one more prophet to be heard from. We've talked about Ezra and Nehemiah. One more to be heard from. His name is Malachi. Malachi's message was a warning against spiritual hypocrisy. And I need to say something. Church, American church, pay attention. Malachi's message is about spiritual hypocrisy. Saying one thing, but doing something totally different. Malachi 1 verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? This is God revealing himself to Malachi, revealing himself to Israel. If I am a master, where is the respect that's due me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? So he's first, listen, this is important. God's first accusation is against the spiritual leaders. They're held accountable before any of the people. Why? Because the spiritual leaders were supposed to spiritually lead, and they didn't. And they asked the question, how have we shown contempt for your name, God? You placed defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. 
When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, so let's just stop for a moment. What's the problem? The sacrifice of the law of Moses on the altar was to be the best you had. Not blind animals, not broken animals, things you weren't going to be able to get any price for at the market or that you wouldn't be eat yourself. These had to be their best. So he says this, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Was the priesthood allowing it? Yes. Were the people doing it? Yes. Yes. Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now, implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings for your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors. So that you would not light, so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, said the Lord Almighty. They had fallen away from the word. There's going to be a 400-year period of silence between Malachi and the New Testament birth of John the Baptist, the one that will come to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah and Malachi. 400 years. I want you to get that. That's longer than America has been America. It's almost two Americas, okay? 400 years, no new word from God. After Malachi, there's silence until John the Baptist appears as the, the final prophet before Messiah comes to the earth. What is Malachi for? Before the pause, before the 400 years of silence. Surely the day is coming. This is a prophecy. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. What, what do you think this is? The wrath of God is coming. Now, so make sure everybody's getting it. Nothing will be left. It'll all turn to stubble. It's all going to be burned up. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from a stall. Now, how many of y'all have ever been farmers who had calves in the barn? I was raised with calves in the barn, okay? And when you turn the calves loose out of the barn, man, they are kicking and they are jumping. That's the illustration God gives in this story. And I got cold chills. Um, but for you who revere my name, he just talked about a fire that's going to consume, that's going to come to consume people. But it, there's a separation. Some are on this side of the fire and some are over here. And the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And you're going to go out and leap like calves released from a stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. So those who have been on the bottom are going to go to the top. Those who revere the Lord are going to become the rulers. Then you will trample down the wicked, and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decreed, decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. So, see, I will send you the prophet Elijah. you got to understand the context. Malachi 4 is the last biblical prophecy for 400 years of silence before John the Baptist comes. Listen carefully. I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. What's the great dreadful day of the Lord we're talking about? When everything's going to be burned with stubble by the, by the wrath of God. I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He 
will turn the hearts of your fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. Do you think it's a coincidence that after 400 years of silence and the prophecy is, I will send you the prophet Elijah. After 400 years, what happens? John the Baptist who comes in the spirit of Elijah to fulfill part of this prophecy. There may be another. I actually believe there's another fulfillment of this prophecy coming in our future. As many believe Elijah will be one of the two witnesses mentioned in the book of Revelation that will come just before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And no, I don't have time to go into that in this session. Notice the last word of the Old Testament is curse. Notice. However, the context of that text is the promising of the coming Messiah. What we call the age of grace. Wow, what a story. Don't miss this next 10 weeks, which we will cover in uh, actually 10 weeks of chapters, which will actually be covered in this warp speed of four weeks in our time. As we enter the greatest story that God has ever told on the earth, and it's this chapter 22, the birth of the king. Here we go. We enter the new covenant. 400 years after Malachi's prophecy. All of my life, I had wanted to go and see the Grand Canyon. I had heard of its incredible beauty and breathtaking scale, but I wanted to see it for myself. Finally, several years ago, when my kids were still very young, we had a chance to take a trip there and wow, was it worth it? How many of y'all been to Grand Canyon? Raise your hand, a lot of you. I can remember walking up to the edge for the very first time and Michael, my youngest son, was very little and I had him by the hand and those of you who've been there know that they don't have any guardrails or anything and whew. And after we walked around for a while, Michael, my little boy, I guess he was about that big and uh, he was hard to keep up with at that age and he looked up at me and he said, Daddy, I can't feel my fingers. And I looked down and I had the death grip on him, buddy. His fingers were blue on the outside. L listen, I had no words or pictures to describe what I saw. It was breathtaking. You can take all the pictures you want to of that and they, they, they have no meaning compared to experiencing. This is what the New Testament does to me. That's it. It takes my breath away. Why? Emmanuel. When you understand Genesis to Malachi and you see what happens in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you see one word, Emmanuel, it's the most incredible thing I've ever experienced. Emmanuel. The New Testament reveals the fulfillment of the Old Testament plan of God to get us back into his presence. The plan is this scene opens with Emmanuel. And if you don't know what it means, it's God with us. God is going to be with us. What's all this Old Testament stuff been about? How he could get the people back into his presence. God came to the earth. As the New Testament opens, what happens? God is coming. He's, he's, he's planning his arrival. We couldn't go to him. L listen, there was no way we could go to him, so he came to us. And that's the gospel. God became flesh and blood human, and he came down here to do what we couldn't do on our own. God came to save us by becoming one of us. This was not an afterthought, but the plan of God ever since the Garden of Eden when God curses the serpent. And this is where we began this journey together, what, nine weeks ago? What? Genesis 3.15. And God is speaking to Satan, the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Tonight, we get to see perhaps in a whole new way the plan of God to become a man. 
one of us and to save us by, by the way, he's the one that made the Grand Canyon. So let's begin with the Gospel of John. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. And in Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. Now I want you as I read this to understand. Malachi, final prophecy before the Old Testament closes is what? See, I will send Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Okay? He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. Otherwise, I would come and curse the land. There came a man, 400 years later, there came a man who was sent from God. Sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming. The true light, Emmanuel, is coming to the world. He was in the world, the one that's coming. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own and that's Israel, that's the Jewish people. But his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of a natural descent or of a human decision or a husband's will, but children that would be born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. I don't think I could ever really understand the why or the how of this scene. I don't think I could ever really understand why and how of this scene. I'll let the word explain both of them. Why did he do it? Why did God become a man? He doesn't need us. Why would, he, why would he send his only begotten son to die on a tree? Why? How did that, how did that fix everything? John 3, 16. This is the why. Okay? Listen carefully. Why? Why John 1? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Why? Why? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So if that's the why, what's the how? Colossians 1.15. He, Jesus, is the image of of the invisible God. God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether they're thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in him he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Wrap your head around that sentence. That God was pleased to have all of his infinite goodness 
live inside a man. Emmanuel. And then he would take that man and put him on a tree and do this. Slay him. He slayed his son. He slayed him. You think the Romans did it? 10,000 angels couldn't have put him on that tree. 10,000 Romans. One angel could have delivered him. 10,000 Romans couldn't have held him there. He could have called angels from heaven. Who put him on the tree? God put him on the tree. He doesn't go on that tree. You go on that tree. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. By making peace through the blood shed on the cross. Making peace. Reconciled through the blood. Reconciled what? To bring you back into the garden of his presence. Because you're not going to get in there any other way. Just the blood. Emmanuel. We first see the plan of God in this word, the book of Isaiah. Some 700 years before the birth of Christ, this word, Emmanuel, appears. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a son. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. It appears again in the New Testament as the angels confirm what Isaiah had already prophesied. God's ultimate upper story plan becomes our plan. Are you ready? Because here it comes, Matthew 1.18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will, I want to emphasize the word will, she will give birth to a son. And, she, and, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is about 750 years before Joseph and Mary. All of this is to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which the Gospel of Matthew interprets as God with us. Isn't it interesting when an angel quotes the Bible? Have you ever thought about that? In this, the angel quotes the scripture to Joseph. What does that tell you about the importance of the Bible? So let's look at this angelic encounter with Joseph, see what we can learn about the story of God. Joseph and Mary were engaged to be married, but had no sexual interaction before the birth of Jesus. Mary's pregnancy would be a scandal in the town of Nazareth. She's Jewish. It'll be a scandal. But Joseph's love for her would have him try to keep it quiet. He calls off the wedding plans. Why? Because she could be put to death for what's just happened. And God wants Joseph to be a part of his story. So he sends an angel to give him a pep talk and tell him, it's okay, I got this. It's all right. So let's go through it. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. And listen, this is so important. What did he say? He said to her, What's, it will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. This is important to Joseph because the angel is confirming that Mary isn't a cheater. Mary isn't a liar. It's important to us today because it tells us that Jesus' father isn't Adam. It isn't Joseph. It isn't any man, anyone from the seed of Adam. You might say, well, why do I care? 
Why is it important? Because Adam's seed is infected. Everybody from Adam, his seed is infected and all of his descendants with the sin nature and the Messiah would not be infected with that sin nature and that changes everything. So how? I want you to look at how the angel Gabriel announces this event to Mary. The angel answered, Luke 135, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now I want you to put yourself in Mary's position. What'd you say? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High God will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. God's Holy Spirit is going to put a seed inside of your womb. Put yourself in her position. What would that be like? So here's the question. Is Jesus the Son of God? Or is he the Son of the Holy Spirit? I've always found this interesting when you get into this um, debate with somebody that struggles with the idea that Jesus is God. How could Jesus be God? How can a man be God? Well, what about the Holy Spirit? Is Jesus the Son of God or is Jesus the Son of the Holy Spirit? So what did it say? Who got Mary pregnant? Wouldn't that be the question? The Holy Spirit. Or is it quite possible that the Holy Spirit and God are the same? They're the same. So a lot of people don't have any trouble with the idea that the Holy Spirit, which got Mary pregnant, is God. But when you say, Jesus, a man is God, you say, whoa, whoa, that's out of bounds. They're all God. God. Many churches are now refuting or refusing to believe in the virgin birth. And I ask you, does it matter? There are churches in Anderson County that do not acknowledge the virgin birth. Does it matter? What if Mary became pregnant by a man? What if it was Joseph or what if it was somebody else instead of the Holy Spirit? Would that make any difference? Let me say, if Jesus' father is a mere man, then all of us are still under the curse of death and we are all forever lost. Why? Because the spotless, perfect spotless blood of Christ would be the only Passover lamb that would get death to pass over you and me. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says this, For as in Adam all die. But what if there's one who's not from Adam? Just one. In fact, let me make a big deal out of this. This is so crucial, a single truth. Of all the billions of people who've ever lived on planet Earth, one did not come from Adam. One. Whose father is not Adam. One. Is this a big deal? It's the biggest big deal of all big deals. One. For as all, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So let me give you the concept of being born again. When I was born naturally, I was born of Adam. When I was born again, my spiritual genealogy transferred from Adam to Christ. I became a child of God instead of a child of Adam's seed. I was born again. No one can enter the kingdom unless he is born again. You got to get out of this seed of Adam event. You got to exit. But none of us can exit the seed of Adam. But there's one that's not from Adam. And to be in Christ and to have him in me separates. I'm born again. I exit this dying bloodline. And I enter life. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, that's Jesus, a life-giving spirit. So if Jesus and I do this, life giving spirit overrides the seed of Adam. 
over us. All of Adam's descendants were under the curse, the curse of death. That's why Jesus tells us we must be born again under a new seed, a pure and righteous seed. Look at how the last chapter of Revelation describes life without a curse. It's been removed. So I want you to use your imagination. Um, Everything is at the end and there's no more curse. No more curse. All right. No more death. No more. It's, It's gone. Okay. There's a new order of things. And, and Revelation 20, no longer will there be any curse. That awaits the children of God. Do you, do you understand how big this is? No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. That's the future of mankind for those who are redeemed. No more curse. So, number two. You're going to have a son, and you're going to name him Jesus, and he'll be a savior. The angel told Joseph what? And he will save his people from their sins. Maybe, not maybe, or left to some chance random processes, but you will have a son. This is an announcement of God to Joseph. You will have a son to Mary. You will have a son. You will name him Jesus. You don't get to go through books and pick out whatever you think sounds cute. His name's going to be Jesus. In the Hebrew, this name is Joshua, which means what? God saves. And some of you might be surprised that it was a common Hebrew name. It's not even an unusual name. Yeshua. If you were in Hebrew, you would say Yeshua. So when we say Yeshua Messiah, if you go to Israel, you'll hear them say Yeshua Messiah. They're Messianic. Yeshua Messiah. Jesus Messiah means Christ to us. Yeshua Messiah, Jesus Christ. You're going to give him that name. Why that name? Because that's the purpose of his coming. His name equals his purpose. Savior. God saves. He is the Savior of the world. And when people get that part, they, they get it. When you understand his identity and purpose is to save you. To save you from the fire of hell and the wrath of God. First John chapter four. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Acts 4.12. Salvation is found no in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Somebody sent me an email here recently asking me a question. They had people they worked with that were of other religions, and I'm not going to go through all the religions. It wouldn't matter what they were anyway. And they were alarmed that they said, they th- are you telling me that only Jesus can save? What about all these other religions that have their gods? There's one name under heaven whereby we can be saved. Why, why do I say it? Listen carefully. Only one is not from Adam. One. Only one. And he said, number three, Joseph, son of David. Why did it list Joseph as son of David? Why was this important? Why did the angel bring up son of David? Matthew 1.17. Thus there are 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. Do you understand what those are? It sounds like there's some kind of a plan going on here. There's 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 generations from David to when they are exiled and Nebuchadnezzar burns down the city and they go into dispersion. And 14 generations from that to Christ. That doesn't look very random, but what does that have to do with Joseph, son of David? Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. So let me ask you a question. When Jesus came, lived on the earth 33 years, was the government on his shoulders? No. It's going to be. A child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. If you study Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, can you see that in the Gospels? Nope. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. That's not what happened in those 33 years. He will reign on David's throne. Did you see that in the Gospels? No. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and how long will it last? Forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Listen carefully. That day's coming. The zeal of God will bring this, not, not, not the church, not us and our clever plans. The zeal of the Lord Almighty is going to accomplish it at exactly his appointed time. So let's go to 2 Samuel 7. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you, David, from the pasture and from following the flock to be the ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over the people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. This is God talking to David. When your days are over, and, your rest with, and you, David, rest with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Who will come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. Joseph, son of David. In the Jewish people, the lineage is traced only through the fathers. Only through the fathers okay the father of the father of the father of that's how you trace genealogy I will raise up from your offspring to succeed you one who will from your own body and I will establish his kingdom he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever so that would be Solomon who built a house for his name but now he's saying I will establish this kingdom of your seed forever I will be his father and he will be my son and when he does wrong I will punish him with the rod of men with flogging inflicted by men but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house, David. This is God to David. This is a prophetic moment. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. How's God going to pull that off? It will endure forever before me. And your throne will be established forever. How's God going to do it? Because there has... You know, uh, before 1948 to 586 B.C., they're not even in the land. They're, they're scattered all over the earth. They come back for a little while, but they don't have a king. They got no king. They're under the Roman Empire. They're under the different empires. They don't have a king. So how's he going to do it? Joseph, the son of David. You see, this changed everything. When God came down, it changed everything. His coming was the fulfillment of the covenant promise to Abraham and to David. He came in the flesh as a man to save us. But I can't help but tell you about what he says in the last chapter of Revelation. In Revelation 22, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root of and the offspring of David. And I am the bright morning star. What do you think? He's the root of David. He is the one from which David came. He is the offspring of David. He is the king of eternity that will come from the lineage of David. He is before, he is after, 
He is forever. Four weeks to go as we travel warp speed from Matthew to Revelation. So I want to close. How many of y'all know the story, the song, um, Mary, Did You Know? I love the words. This is an incredible classic song played at Christmas time. But it is also profound from this perspective. What did she know? Mary, did you know that your baby will one day walk on water? Did you know that your baby boy will save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? The child that you delivered will soon deliver you? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will calm a storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? And when you kiss your little baby, this one blows me away, you kiss the face of God. Whoa. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will live again. The lame will leap, the dumb will speak, the praises of the Lamb. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is the Lord of all creation? Did you know that your baby boy will one day rule the nations? There's the lineage of David. Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? The sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. Emmanuel, God with us. Somebody say hallelujah. If you don't say it, I'm going to. So. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Emmanuel. Thank you for the new covenant. You gave these Gentiles, us, a chance to enter the kingdom. We can become the children of God through this Emmanuel. We couldn't reach you, so you came down to us. We worship you. We wait for you. Like a watchman waits for the morning. Like a watchman waits for the morning. In Jesus' name, amen.